Shortly after being diagnosed with bipolar 1 disorder in June of 2018, I knew that I wanted to find purpose in my experience. I started brainstorming ways that I could help others to navigate the uncharted chapters of their own mental health story. I started playing around with the idea of a podcast. So I'm going to be honest. I recorded this first episode of Uncharted Chapter nearly eight months ago. And even after receiving an overwhelmingly positive response from the handful of friends I asked to preview it, I decided not to share it. Sharing your personal mental health story is hard. I found the experience of producing this podcast left me with an incredibly raw feeling of shame and vulnerability. But as this episode sat gathering digital cobwebs on my MacBook, the belief that immersive storytelling could serve as a catalyst for producing understanding and reducing stigma around mental illness only grew stronger. Recently, I decided that it would be worth moving forward with it, and I'm at peace with that decision. Some people may not be in a place where they're ready to listen. If descriptions of mental illness, including mania, depression, and suicide are triggers for you, and I know they can be for me, I'd encourage sitting this one out. There's also the rare use of colorful language that might land us a PG-13 rating at worst. If you find this podcast helpful, know that I'd certainly appreciate you taking the time to leave us a review wherever you listen and share with anyone you know who could benefit. Lastly, though the first series of episodes will focus on my story, the intention is to continue producing episodes featuring others who have a story of severe mental illness that they'd like to share. If you're interested or just want to drop a line, you can go to unchartedchapter.com and use the contact form to email me. Thank you for listening. I hope it helps. Let's go back to 2018. It's 2 a.m. in the morning, and I jump out of bed. Someone is on my property. No. Two people. I can hear them whispering. And I know they're going to kill us. I run through every room in the house, throwing open windows, my boy's room, the, the living room. And I peer out into the darkness and I see nothing, but still I know that there's someone out there, two men who are armed, and I'm convinced we're going to die. Eventually, I run to the dining room and peer out the window, and what I see confirms my suspicions. There's a truck, and it's parked outside one of the apartments next door. It's on the border of our property, but not really on our property, and because it wasn't there when I went to bed, I just know this is the truck that the killers are driving. So. I wake up my sleeping wife. Come look at this, I whisper. She stumbles into the dining room sleepily. I show her the truck. 
I think there's someone on our property, I say. She seems confused. It's probably just someone visiting the neighbors, she says. I can't comprehend why she's not alarmed by the side of the truck. She goes back to the bedroom and falls back asleep. Why doesn't she understand? They're here to kill us. I don't know why. I just know that's what they're here to do. So I call the cops. 911, what's your emergency? There are two people outside of our house. I tell him. He says he'll send someone over. I grab a baseball bat and hide on the floor of the kitchen and strain my ears. Voices again. I hear a car pull up outside. Then the familiar sound of police radio. They're walking around my property and I can see their flashlights. They're causing shadows to move across the floor. They're going to think I'm one of the killers. I struggle to hide in the corner, but their flashlights find me. The light disappears. And then there's a knock at the door. I open the door to two weary looking officers. They tell me that they've searched the property and that they found no one. They ask me what the men look like. I struggle to think. I'm not sure, I say. They ask how I knew there was someone on the property. I heard voices. The police assure me that they've searched thoroughly. There is no one on the property. After they leave, I'll spend the rest of the night with the baseball bat in hand, going from window to window, and I'll do this until the sun comes up. There were many nights like this one in the months leading up to June of 2018. It was common for me to wake up to the sound of doors being pounded on, or doorknobs rattling, and indiscernible whispers. Occasionally, the whispers were louder, and rather than coming from outside of the house, came from immediately outside of my ear. Sometimes they said my name. Many nights, I would wake up to the smell inside of smoke. I would scour the house, looking for the source. One night during this period, I woke up convinced that there was a demon on my roof. I could hear it scratching. I went outside, terrified, trying to find it, but it was nowhere to be found. When I went back inside, I could still hear the scratching. I used a broomstick and knocked on the ceiling two times. Something knocked back. I knocked three times. Something knocked back three times. Eventually, it stopped responding, and I tried to fall back asleep. But the sound of my children laughing from down the hall continued to wake me up. I got up to check on them repeatedly, and they were always asleep. Not every night during this time was filled with terror. Some nights were filled with a restless energy. On those nights, I would write plays and long stories, convinced that what I was creating was pure genius. In my more lucid moments, 
I would read what I had written. It was practically incoherent. I'm not talking first draft bad, I'm talking nonsensical. While this was happening, I continued to manage a large team for a tech company, led a community group for my church, all while being a husband and father to three young boys. I did everything I could to be normal and appear stable, to not draw attention to myself. I started to distrust everyone, thinking everyone was working against me my family, my closest friends. I would become confused when I was speaking to people. I would have entire conversations where I heard the other person say things they weren't saying. I became aware of being watched constantly and was increasingly jumpy. Anxious energy had started to lead to physical tics that I was ashamed of and I would shun going out in public. When we did go to church on Sundays, I would insist on sitting in the balcony as far away from human eyes as possible. The symptoms were unbearably painful. The constant terror, the physically debilitating depression, the sudden and lengthy burst of heightened energy that would result and inescapable commitments, it was more than I could take. And after years of keeping this part of my life effectively hidden, I now found myself without anyone to turn to. In June of 2018, I finally broke. This is a story about mental illness and how I went 18 years undiagnosed and untreated. It's a story about the stigma that leads people to hide mental health symptoms, about the difficulty associated with navigating the mental health care system, about the effect a mental illness has on everyday life. It's also a story about the fight to get better. This is Uncharted Chapter. What sounds do you think of when you think of depression? This sound? (laughs) What about this one? (laughs) Much of the time, depression actually sounds like this. (laughs) Also known as smiling depression. I couldn't find the sound of smiling. Smiling depression is something that's never happened to me because I suffer from resting bitch face. The first time that I remember experiencing depression was shortly after I turned 16. And it sounded like this. sound of a roughly two-month period, my senior year of high school. 
It's the Muppet Christmas Carol, as anyone with a heart will recognize. I estimate that during this time, I watched this movie at least 40 times, maybe as many as 60. So what does this movie have to do with depression? We'll come back to it in a minute. I remember being anxious a lot growing up, but I wasn't unhappy. I had always been a bit of an introvert, a little bit of a loner, and not the cool kind. I had friends, but my favorite place to be was in my room. The place was a shrine to everything that I loved as a 16-year-old. I had an autographed photo of Frank Oz on the wall, the puppeteer famous for being Yoda and Miss Piggy. I had a standing piano, a closet full of antique Winnie the Pooh dolls, first English editions of books like Pinocchio and Les Mis, an unopened Irma Bombeck daily calendar that I was convinced was growing in value, and I do not know why. <laughs> I was obsessed with the Muppets, obviously. I wanted to work for the Muppets. I knew their history, the names of the performers. I should say, I didn't want to work for the Muppets. <laughs> um, I wanted to work for Jim Henson. I actually tried at one point. I owned all of their movies, and I had a ton of their crap in my room. I also had a thing for Val Kilmer films, and one of my most coveted possessions was the film The Ghost in the Darkness. I was odd, but in a way that I still kind of admire and still kind of am. And like every teen in the history of forever, I had ups and I had downs. I had good days and I had bad days. And then one day, something new. Something different. And this new thing wasn't sadness. I knew what sadness felt like. I remember feeling sad when we lost a pet. I remember feeling sad when school years ended and I had to say goodbye for the summer. I remember feeling sad when a young friend of mine died. I knew sadness, but this wasn't that. It was nothingness. It felt hollow and empty and heavy and painful. But how did this happen? I couldn't remember. So yesterday, I called my mom. Mom, remember when I watched The Muppets a million times and didn't go to school? When was that? And I'm not going to imitate my mother, but she says... I think it was at the beginning of the second semester of your senior year. And why was I staying home all the time? And she says... Because you had bronchitis. And I'm like... Say what? Then it comes back to me. I remember a period of like a week or two being really legitimately <coughs> sick. And then I started to get better. But I didn't tell my parents that. I still had a cough. And I used that cough as proof that I was way too sick and way too weak to go back to school, which was great because, again, there's this weird, hollow, empty, heavy, painful thing happening in me. 
But bronchitis? What does that have to do with depression? I went looking for an answer to my misery, and instead, I find a mystery. A mystery that lasted the two minutes it took me to find something on Google. The first link bringing up a study that indicated upper respiratory infections can trigger mood episodes in people with bipolar disorder. It has something to do with inducing peripheral interferon beta release, which is kind of what I had suspected anyway, except I don't have any idea what that means. Still, it's interesting, right? So anyways, The Muppet Christmas Carol. Something about this movie was supremely comforting. To this day, I can still quote it word for word. And when I see Michael Caine in whatever role he's playing, warmth washes over me. So the year starts with me in this depressed stupor. And what about the rest of the year? Here's where things start to get a little bipolar. One day, the depression lifted. As quickly and as unexpectedly as it had arrived, it was gone. There was no lingering emptiness, no slow and steady recovery. It was, as it would be so often, like a light switch was flipped. I remember returning to school with a confidence that hadn't been there before. It was as if someone had surgically removed the part of me that was concerned with what others thought and replaced it with the unchallengeable belief that I was damn likable. Normally at school, I stayed quietly engaged with a small group of friends or would walk around alone. But when I returned to campus following that winter hiatus, I felt this unfamiliar sense of deep connectedness with others. Normally I wasn't a huge fan of most people. I preferred puppets. But suddenly, everyone felt like a friend. I couldn't think of a reason why they wouldn't be. This may not sound especially significant to you. I doubt that it looked like much from the outside, but it's incredibly difficult to articulate what it felt like on the inside. For someone who was normally consumed with an abundance of self-doubt, suddenly being immediately relieved of it felt like winning the lottery. Bipolar disorder is marked by the cycling of extreme emotional states namely depression and mania. I would not call what I experienced in the spring of 2001 mania. That would come later. This was most likely my first experience with the milder form of mania known as hypomania. But for anyone who has experienced this elevated state, milder likely feels like the wrong word. There's nothing mild about it. It's difficult to describe hypomania, but I'll try, knowing that my experience may differ from others. It's like your brain is boiling in sunshine. 
the familiar and boring world around you is suddenly ignited in brilliance. The sky becomes a striking blue, the clouds an immaculate white. The birds are singing for you, and you hear every precious, meaningful note in every one of their songs. You suddenly realize the absolute absurdity of not being in love with everything, every moment of every day. No one can hurt you. You will not die. You have no end. You are eternal. Everyone is so interesting and so boring and so loving and so worthy of love and yet so incredibly unimportant compared to you. You decide to entirely reorganize your room and give it a deep clean. Well, that's 20 minutes well spent. At its best, hypomania is the cleanest, purest, most addictive drug I have ever had coursing through my veins. The fact that it's nestled in between periods of depression only makes it that much more enthralling. And when it's gone, the fact that it ever existed and the fear that it will never return only makes depression that much more unbearable. That last semester of high school that started with depression, by all accounts, was the best I'd ever do in school. I was in a play, I made honor roll for the first time, won a student of the month award from our local Elks Club. I still don't really know what the Elks Club is. But for all the external evidence that something powerful was at work, it was all small potatoes compared to what was happening inside. Inside, where thoughts were bathed in glorious light. I graduated high school a happy young man. I had no word for depression at the time. But the hollow, empty, heavy, painful thing I had experienced earlier in the year was behind me. The future was bright and exciting. The possibilities felt endless. This feeling felt endless. But if there's one thing people with bipolar disorder understand above all other things, it's this. Don't trust your feelings. Thank you.